0: Hello, I'm Kate Arkell, Research Development Manager at Retina UK. Today we'll be talking about the UK Inherited Retinal Dystrophy Consortium, or UK IRDC, which has sometimes been referred to as the RP Genome Project. This is a major research project started in 2014 and funded by Retina UK with support from Fight for Sight. With a significant proportion of inherited retinal conditions being caused by unidentified genetic faults and many families unable to get clear results from genetic tests in clinic, the project set out to solve previously undiagnosable cases and discover more of the genes and mutations that are associated with sight loss. My co-host today is Dr Medina Kara, Director of Research and Innovation at Fight for Sight. And we'll be talking to Professor Graham Black, Professor of Genetics and Ophthalmology at Manchester University and a consultant ophthalmologist at Manchester Royal Eye Hospital. And um, Professor Black was the original lead investigator of the UK IRDC. We're also talking to Professor Alison Hardcastle, Professor of Molecular Genetics and Deputy Director of Research within the Institute of Ophthalmology at University College London. And Alison is the current lead investigator of the UK IRDC project. So, Graham, why is it important for families and for researchers to find the genes and genetic variants that cause IRDs?
1: Yeah, thank you. And uh, good afternoon. Thank you for the invitation to chat to you. Um, I, I think from family's point of view, uh, over a number of years, there's been a, a frustration in not knowing what the cause of their retinal dystrophies might be. And that gives them difficulties with family decision making. It certainly makes it very hard in terms of predicting prognosis. They're worried about risk to children or, or um, to other family members and then of course moving forward there's the suspicion that there may be treatable causes um, that are being missed and so for a whole range of reasons I think that families just want greater certainty over an understanding of, of what their, their condition might be. If we look at their clinicians they're sitting on the other side of the of the the, the fence if you like, and they're also worried that they may be missing treatable causes um, and they're the ones that are being asked to give the advice that the families are are seeking and then if we move down one further, you were asking about scientists well of course um, the scientists are trying to get as clear an understanding of the breadth of causes of retinal dystrophies so that we can understand why it is that the retina is so sensitive to such a range of gene faults um, and also how we might develop treatments that, um, that impact the condition.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's the key thing.
2: Hi, Graeme. It's Medina Cara. Um, My Question for you was what was the situation with clinical genetic testing in the UK when you started the project back in sort of 2014?
1: Although the project started in 2014, the discussions mm-hmm. with the different centres, with Retina UK and with Fight for Sight, um, probably began around 2011-2012, um, and uh, were were catalysed just by that, that shift from um, very primitive testing, which we'd begun in about 20, um, no, 2004, um, and then the shift to what's called next generation sequencing to much more comprehensive testing, which began in around 2011, 2012. And so we were just at that point that genetic testing was taking off. Um, and so it was beginning to be um, delivered. But when you talked to many centres, there was a, a frustration because there were financial constraints within the um, NHS that slowed things down for uh, you know many years. Um, and there was a need, I think, to enhance understanding through data sharing.
2: Great. And so, how did you gather your co-investigators and get that original grant application off the ground? Because that's an Im- you know immense amount of work.
1: Yeah. And so it, it was a lot of work. And I do remember sitting in a pub in Woodstock in Oxfordshire um, with quite a lot of coffee, typing um, over a number of weekends. I'm very fond of Woodstock actually. As a result, you you you, you remember where the successful grants were written. Um, and The the other thing that catalyzed this for me was, um, as as a reviewer of grants on a number of different boards, starting to see the same grants coming out from different centres and working out that we we were all wanting to do pretty much the same thing. And we all had our our cohorts of patients, but we we needed to bring that together. And um, talking to David Head, Head of Retina UK at the time, um, talking to yourselves at, at Fight for Sight, um, and then basically going around um, the major centers and saying, Did we think that this was a good idea? And, you know, that there was a balance between wanting to go it alone and realizing that if we were going to be successful here, um, although we all have a lot of patience, um, the the number of patients that we required to be able to analyse the data were only going to be um, available through um, through pooling data, really through sharing expertise. Um, And so um, the the centres to some degree chose themselves.
0: So Alison, sort of from your perspective, what is the importance of having those le- those leading centres all involved in the importance of collaboration so we've got Manchester, Leeds, Oxford and, and yourselves at University College London and um, what are the different sort of areas of expertise that everybody brings to the
3: table? That's a great question Kate, hello everyone I'm Alison, um, it's, it's absolutely fundamental to the success of the project I mean all the centres knew each other, we all knew of the work we were doing to try and solve unsolved cases within inherited retinal dystrophies and yet we were working alone and putting these grant applications in separately now with with graham's leadership we were able to put this application in and, and thank goodness we were funded but what it means is that we've got um, expert clinicians such as graham in manchester susie in oxford we have andrew webster for example in london Uh, Martin McGibbon in Leeds, expert clinicians who got this cohort of patients that we were unable to solve individually in our own centres. And the the scientists who were working hard to try and solve them were struggling to solve them because we couldn't identify any changes in the genes that we knew about. So we knew it was going to be more difficult. Um, We then actually initiated a bioinformatics strategy because once we create the data, we need to analyse the data effectively. So we came up with strategies specifically to look at these inherited retinal dystrophy changes in in the human human genome in our patient cohorts. And of course we have PhD students, so it's a whole host of different expertise from every single centre, from very senior to very junior early career researchers and students coming into the team. And we have had some fantastic meetings where we discuss and debate the findings um, with our our knowledge, different knowledge in different areas. In some cases, Um, we can discuss perhaps that it was an unexpected clinical association with a phenotype or an unexpected gene change, for example, and whether we thought it was real and causative. So the different expertise and that team spirit has just been absolutely fantastic. I think Graham, yeah. would you um, like to so, add
1: to that? Yeah, so I I agree with that, Alison. So we all work in a, a similar area. Of course, we're all seeing um, patients and thinking about inherited retinal disease. Um, and so bringing that expertise, but more of that just that enthusiasm into a room. And I I, I Predict that there was a a little bit of a suspicion that if you put competing centres in a room, they wouldn't be able to work together. Um, And the truth is, there's there's more than enough work to go round. And so we've ended up dovetailing different projects. We're not all working on exactly the same thing, but we're sharing our thoughts. Our understanding um, and our experience and you know, on one level, it's been very successful. But I think the thing that comes across to me is it's just been quite a lot of fun. Um, And the meetings are, are genuinely something that we look forward to. And, you know, I think that's great, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. Actually, I've I've sat in on parts of some of your meetings and I have to say that enthusiasm and that collective effort, that sense of collective effort really comes across. It's 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 great to have so many people round the table or more recently on the screen who are all, you know, have that same shared shared aim. So, yeah, that's great.
2: Um, And Alison, if I come back to you to to ask what kind of individuals and patients you were looking for to take part in in the project and and how you actually go about gathering DNA samples from them.
3: Yeah, sure, Medina. So what we're looking at here, we don't want, we're not trying to duplicate effort through the clinical genetic testing. What we're trying to do is enhance it. Um, by new discoveries. And so what we've done is selected individuals from each centre who we've pre-screened through clinical genetic testing, and we haven't found anything at all. So we cannot actually identify the cause of the condition through that pipeline and and identified this huge need to actually generate our own data and analyse it in our own ways with our knowledge and skills that we have uh, across all the centres to try and solve these cases. So they've all been pre-screened in different ways uh, for genes that we know about and nothing's been found. And I think we're up to about 440, hang on, 570 individuals that we have um, taken DNA samples for. These individuals have been identified through those centres where we fail to identify the cause or they've got an unusual retinal dystrophy that doesn't seem to fit anything that we know about. That's always a a topic of great discussion in our meetings. And then we um, collect DNA samples through our clinical geneticists or through our our clinician scientists and through the different centres. I should point out that we have been recruiting from other centres. We're the core lead centres but we have recruited patients from other centres across the UK as well where they've also struggled to Identify the cause of the condition, um, and then we create. So we send the DNA. We get the DNA samples from these individuals. We may then reach out to other individuals in the extended family, which gives us a little bit more power um, to understand the genetic cause of disease. And then we um, we do next generation sequencing. So that's either exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing, and it depends on the level that, that we think we, need, we require for those conditions. So if you imagine um, whole genome sequencing is sequencing all three billion letters of, of your human genome, how complicated that data will look and how difficult it is to handle and analyse. We initially look at the data for um, changes in the genes that code, code for proteins. And of those 3 billion letters, only less than 2% of those 3 billion letters actually code for a gene. So we start there um, and we found many new genes through that route. And I'm sure Graeme can add to this conversation. But, um, so we have this huge resource shared of shared data where we can talk about the, the clinical phenotypes that we're seeing and what changes in the human genome we're seeing. And, and then we can work together to solve to solve the conditions
2: and it sounds like you you know with the samples donated you, you get a lot of use out of them and 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 you're able to to use a lot of that genetic material for for perhaps multiple questions it sounds like is, is that correct
1: yeah graham would you like to add to that yeah yeah so so it, it's not so much the samples that we get use out of um although as part of the consent process that we put in and of course the administration of the project and ensuring that we have the same consent processes and the same agreements in all of the centres was part of this, um, and that that seems seems dull, but it turns out to be really important. But it's more the use of the data, mm-hmm. um, and we we now have you know literally huge volumes of data that are stored securely that are able to be used, and even those samples that we've if you like, we call it solved. Those data are very valuable because there are, you know, tens of thousands of variants in every individual that can be used to compare um, within and between different um, individuals, um, and so it's it's very much a cumulative resource.
0: And I know that you've you've also collaborated sort of outside the core UKIRDC project. Um, could you tell us a bit more, Graham, about the 100,000 Genomes Project for those listeners who might not know much about it and how it linked in with UKIRDC?
1: Yeah, genomics, rare diseases, inherited retinal disease. For a long time, it, it seemed difficult to get anyone uh, interested. Um, and certainly, I, I suspect some of Your listeners will will think that. But actually, I think in the last decade, um, the interest in genomics has been very strong in the UK. And going back to, I'm guessing, around 2012, um, it was the then Prime Minister, um, David Cameron, who, because of his own experiences, felt that diagnosing rare diseases was something that, ought to be easier than it it indeed was, and set up a project, the 100,000 Genomes Project, to perform whole genome sequencing on 100 individuals from the UK population across all of rare diseases and also um, sequencing uh, cancer tumours. And the aim was to try to understand whether genomic testing could be rolled out more broadly, to understand whether diagnosis of rare disease could be accelerated and also improved, and Mm -hmm. to look at the context there. And so that was initially a research project, but that's very rapidly translated into a transformation in, in clinical services. And so although the IRDC allowed us to aggregate this group of experts, alongside that data and patients were also being collected for the 100,000 Genomes Project. And so I think, you know, generally the the environment just for testing has got much better in the last 10 years. um, And, you know, that can only be a good thing.
3: Yeah. Um
0: are there any other projects that, that IRDC has allowed you to sort of make links with that have been sort of also involved in this this upsurge in genomic interest interest in genomics?
1: Yeah, so so I think the answer is yes. I I I tend to think that working in groups is is more fun than working on your own. Um and so I I I would encourage scientists but have always been enthusiastic about that and alongside the IRDC one that we can we can cite is the ERDC the European Retinal Disease Consortium that was set up by colleagues um, in Holland Um, and indeed I think all of the members of the um, IRDC are also members there. Um, Now I think we've we've had a, a a very significant um, advantage that the IRDC is funded where the ERDC has been um, very much done on the back of enthusiasm and groups across Europe Um, but but nonetheless you know the the philosophy behind it which is that you know the more data you share with the more people the more you're going to discover um, is is, uh, precisely this.
0: Yeah, it's really nice to hear actually about international collaboration. And I know a lot of our listeners will really appreciate that. Um, they're very keen on, on the whole idea of people working together and not in silos. And um, does it get harder and harder as you go along to find new variants? So presumably the lower hanging fruit is, is easier to gather and that's what gets found first. So as you progress through the project, is it, is it getting tougher?
1: Uh, so there are two ways of looking at that. So, if you look at the sequencing that's being done, the number of variants that you find you've seen before um, is increasing.
0: Okay. So, that
1: that makes it much easier to interpret what you're finding. Yeah. Okay. So, at the beginning, we hadn't seen variants. And so, you can have either, if you look at a, a genetic variant, Um, you can be certain that it has no impact. You can be certain that it has an impact, or sitting in the middle. A very common scenario is that the, the variant is one that we we're not sure what it does. A so-called yeah. variant of unknown significance, a VUS. Um, and so, if you see something you've never seen before in a patient, being certain is really difficult yeah as as we go on as we sequence more patients and we see VUSs again and again so they can tip towards being variants of significance towards being more certain and so um, sometimes not finding new variants but finding variants that we've seen before is actually a really valuable thing um, and so I think as the data accumulate, our ability to understand the data gets much greater. And so uh, if, if you're talking about low hanging fruit, I think that as we've gone on, we've been we've been getting orange boxes and we've been standing on <laughs> the orange boxes and we can reach yeah. higher fruit. Um, that makes complete so sense. We're, yeah. we're, we're getting better at it, perhaps. Yeah,
3: makes sense. Yeah, I think it's really important to point that out, Graeme, isn't it? Uh, low-hanging fruit was perhaps a phrase we used a few years ago. We've, we've moved beyond that. And, and it's really the power of the data and and the, and the joint thinking and joint effort that's helping us move things forward.
2: And that takes us really nicely into into perhaps exploring some of the most exciting findings from the project um, to date. Uh, Graham, I don't know if you want to start, and then and then Alison, we can kind of come to you as well uh, to expand on that.
1: The most exciting findings. Um, well, I'm I'm going to be flippant for a while, um, and say that the most exciting finding was that we found that we could all work together.
2: Um, and, and so,
1: you know, if, if you If you come up with an idea and you say it would be really good to have four groups in the room and there's inevitably going to be a little bit of you know uncertainty probably on both sides both from the funders and from the other workers the 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 greatest finding I think is that you know very quickly those meetings just became you know one amongst friends Um, working on something that we're all interested in Um, and and I think we suspected that that would be a powerful approach and it was and so rather than talk science for a moment if we just talk about the philosophy behind it I think that's that's something which um, I don't I you know I I think is very satisfying um, to see come come true.
2: Yeah, and very important, I think, your point of also, you know, these projects are great at also learning what people are capable of. And so if there are other questions that need to be answered in collaboration in the future, it shows what's possible and the lessons that you you, you could could share with people in, in, in how you do it. So yeah. I think that's invaluable. Um, Alison, if you have anything to kind of expand on Graham's point.
3: yeah sure I mean maybe I should I completely agree with Graham and it's such an amazing training environment for the younger early career researchers coming through who we want to keep in vision research of course so uh, it it's it it bodes well for the future I think um yeah in terms of discoveries I mean inevitably we found new genes that would never have been found through the the classic route of clinical testing Um, and that's given us new insight into the biology of the retina and that will also then give us new insight on how to treat these conditions as graham described so we've got new genes and we've got new um, diseases if you like new conditions so there are some conditions that we weren't expecting that would affect the eye only and some some conditions where we find gene variants that actually also affect other organs in the body. And that's really important, obviously, for the patients that were that we're recruiting to the study. So there's lots of lots of interesting findings and very unique findings from this consortium.
2: I think our listeners were really interested in listening to more about the RP17 discovery, and if mm-hmm. you could um you know talk us through that
3: i'm sure so this is this is an ex and and that's a great example i love it Graham. i'm going to use that from now on in the future where we were we were stood on the box of oranges um looking at the one particular family um who we've known about at moorfields eye hospital for over 35 years it was actually the first family tree that we drew up at, at our site here and we've been unable to solve it now by by being able to recruit individuals through the IRDC, we were able to create our own data and analyze it in different ways. And we were looking at the gene sequences and found absolutely nothing. And then we realized that actually it's not a gene as such. What we found is rather than a variant in a gene, I'm cutting a very long story short here. (laughs) Rather than a variant in a gene, it's a a changed structure to a little bit of a chromosome. So we have found the cause of RP17, but we've still got a long way to go. And it was a remarkable discovery in many ways, because what it's done is enabled us to think about how we analyze all the sequencing data in, a different, in different ways with different approaches. So now we can think about that we need to look for what we call structural variants, these slight rearrangements in your chromosome, um, as a cause of retinitis pigmentosa, and there are lots. There's lots more to come, I'm sure, about these kind of variants that aren't within genes that we understand less about than we do about the variants that we we know in genes. Um, so that was very exciting to be able to have um, some data from that original family finally after all these years. And it wasn't just that family. We again, as as Graham mentioned because we collaborate with the European uh, retinal disease consortium, we were collaborating with those those chats and talking to them, and they had a similar story in their uh, families from the Netherlands. And and that was really what what clinched it for us because, uh, you know, Graham said originally if you find one variant of unknown significance, it's very difficult to be certain if it's the cause. But once you find other families and other variants, similar variants, or in the same gene you can be much more certain that then went into canadian families uh, families from south africa so it really is a global effort and we haven't even started touching the cohort in the us yet so um, so yes it's very very exciting for us to find to find the cause in the in that particular family that's that we've been uh, trying to um, really solve for over 35 years
2: Absolutely. And I think to, to your point about um, the U.S., we sort of come on to that question next. So from from our perspective of Fight for Sight and Retina UK, you know, it, it's interesting hearing your perspective on collaboration of the researchers, the collaboration of the partners and the funders, I think, has also shown um, value. And and we're obviously both funders really pleased that actually you then went on to leverage really significant follow on funding from the U.S.-based Foundation for Fighting Blindness for a five year study to to sort of st- investigate rp17 further and um, could you expand a little bit on that study that you're going to be doing
3: yes of course so yes we were very fortunate and very grateful for that funding and it, of course it was completely leveraged by the finding through the UK RDC as is much of all of our research funding in our labs um through, for different projects different conditions different genes has stemmed from from the UK RDC. so um so yes we've got this We've got this uh, program grant. So now what we want to do is define which genomic changes at that particular region in the chromosome do cause retinitis pigmentosa, and importantly, which ones don't. Because we don't want to misdiagnose anyone, and it's a complicated um, mechanism, uh, genetic mechanism. So we need to fully understand that. We're doing that with our Dutch colleagues. Um, so they're they're leading that side of things and then we're going to um, make models in the lab using what we from stem cells called retinal organoids so that we've got the changes in the chromosome in the context of of human retinal tissue so we can see how then that affects the genes in the region and hopefully we can pin it down to one gene and then the plan is of course to um, develop a therapy so that we can think of a way to treat the condition
0: That's a great overview Alison
3: of a a really complex
0: project so yeah we wish you all the best of luck with that over the coming years and to your point about leverage funding how important is it that charities fund projects like UK IRDC in terms of allowing you to then leverage funding from other sources can you give us some examples of, of the kind of other sources of funding you're
3: able to access? Yeah so I mean the 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 U.S.-based foundation fighting blindness is two and a half million dollars over five years. So that's that's a key example for leveraging. But also um, specific projects, as I described, on specific conditions. Now we may go back on a particular gene or a particular condition and write a project grant for a scientist to to do some in-depth res- research in the laboratory, so we can understand how it's affecting, why is it causing that gene not to function properly, and is there any way we can develop do some preclinical development for therapy. So that's fundamental to a lot of the research that we do. We do go to the research councils, such as the Medical Research Council. Um, and we also apply for funding for our early career researchers. They can apply for fellowships, which, which is really the transition between um, being a, a scientist in training post PhD to a scientist who will perhaps then lead their own group and, and continue research in in the retina, for example, so that we can um, keep these good scientists in, in, our, in our fold and grow them as independent researchers. And that's clinicians and scientists. Um, and then there are, of course, PhD studentships. So there's much levering to be done here. And I'm gonna pass over to Graham because I'm sure he's got comments on leveraging.
1: Yeah. Well, so yeah, there's a, there's a jargon phrase, isn't that? Leveraging funding. Mm. Um, so, so the good thing is we we've, we've been talking for a few minutes about the increased interest in, in genomics and in rare disease and I think the retinal specialists and uh vision scientists were very quick on the mark to realize that this was a, an area that was going to be very important. I think in recent years there have been a number of, um, you know, just to get serious for a while, the more people that are working in rare disease, on, on the one hand, the better, but it means that there's, there's more com- competition for what was a similar amount of funding. And so coming back to your question about why is a, a, a grant like this, why Fight for Sight Retina UK are important, I think they're crucial. In getting projects off the ground, actually, in starting projects, in maintaining research groups, in maintaining the enthusiasm that was already there, moving forward, and you know, the 100,000 genomes project involved uh, audiologists, renal specialists, cardiologists, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and so the the amount of work on the retina. Was was very significant, but the amount of funding was relatively limited, and so again, I think coming back to, uh, I I don't know whether you would think of yourselves as small charities, but you're you're not large by the the standards of, for example, the Wellcome Trust, but um, a, as a way of providing seed corn funding and moving forward in maintaining the research base in the UK I think without it it would be it would be really really hard um, and so you know I I don't think I can under underline more strongly how grateful we are for the funding um, and how reliant uh, UK science is mm-hmm. on your charities and we've been talking about the fact that You know, the scientists work together, but clearly the the two of you are on this. And that was part of of my initial objective was to try to get um, collaboration on all sides um, going. And so, you know, absolutely crucial.
0: Yeah. And I think um, be nice just to say at this point, and I'm sure Medina shares my sentiment, that at Retina UK and I'm sure at Fight for Sight, we are very, very grateful to our community for supporting us and making donations to us and doing all of the things they do, because this allows us to fund these projects and then the projects themselves go on to, to great things. So just a, just a quick thank you there. And also to come back to you, we're, we're very proud that, that we've got, there are lots of early career scientists working on this project. We really like to support the future, if you like. Um, it sounds like this project really has helped develop a lot of younger scientists. Are you confident that, that the future is in safe hands and that the momentum in, in research in this area is going to be maintained for the coming decades?
1: I'm, I'm by nature an optimist. And there is no question in my mind that enhancing and developing centres of excellence um, is is the way forward in that. And there there are four centres in the UK IRDC. There are more around the UK, of course, in Southampton, in uh, Edinburgh, in Cardiff, you know, throughout um, England and the devolved nations. Um, and so, you know, I I think that we have a very very good basis of uh, clinical science in the UK.
2: So it's becoming something we 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 slightly discussed earlier about the fact that the more samples you get, the more the more understanding the the idea that it validates something. Um, if people have donated a sample to the project, do they always hear back about the outcome? And 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 I suppose if if down, you know, following a few years, their, their gene is identified or their variant, um, you know, is, there, is that sort of fed back into the people that donated their samples? And, you know, how, how do you keep in touch, I suppose, with those people that have participated in, in, in the studies?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I think in general, the answer to that is yes. But communication um, and communication back to families is and always has been challenging within research projects and so there are there are two sides to that I I think that if we don't find anything and there remain a a significant number of families in whom we still haven't found the answer it doesn't mean that it isn't in there it's just that we can't interpret it as we've been saying um it's very difficult to keep a dialogue that says, you know, we're still looking. We haven't found anything. My my belief is that if we find something, people will find out about it. But if we don't find anything, um, then it's it's slightly more difficult.
0: Thank you. And just as a sort of final wrap up, I guess going forward, the the important thing that perhaps families will be interested in is. How do your results make an impact on people going to clinic today to get a, a clinical genetic test or or those who will go for a genetic test in the next 10 or 15 years?
1: Yeah, and I think we can we can both give our, our, our different views on this. Um, the landscape has has transformed over the last five or seven years, um, although Manchester was the, the first diagnostic lab. Um, and we provided evidence that diagnostics was a good thing there are now three um in, in in England there's a diagnostic lab being set up in Scotland um and probably one in Wales as well so the amount of testing is getting greater and I think that the the team that underpinned the IRDC has been central to that and so people first of all can be confident that they will get a test, and that that will be free at the point of access, and that's genuinely fantastic. And and mm-hmm. the, the UK is is if not unique, is is certainly unusual in world terms in that. And that's great. Um, and the the next thing is that the complexity of that test or the comprehensiveness of the test is much greater than it was even two years ago. And again, I think the UK IRDC or its participants have been central in ensuring that if you get a test, it's as good as it possibly can be. Um, and so that's that's great, I think. And we've been talking about improved interpretation so that the number of tests that come back positive is slowly, incrementally going up and up and up and up. And so you know, I I think that the landscape has transformed. The flip side of that is, you know, we haven't talked about treatments very much today, but the treatment for RPE65 has been implemented by NHS England, in England, in the UK. Other treatments will follow. Mm -hmm. And the more testing, the more positive tests, the more likely it is that those will follow. And so, you know, um, in 10 or 15 years time, the things that we can be certain of are that I won't be the one offering the test any longer. But I do think that what will be done on those tests will get increasingly um, powerful. It's a very exciting time. actually. Yeah, I mean, I just like
3: I just like to add, I mean, I, that's great, Graham. Honestly, it's an. I think in many ways I just want to say a huge thank you to the clinical colleagues in the UK IRDC because once we've found made these new discoveries, our clinical colleagues are embedded in defining what genetic testing is done so that we can feed all our new findings back into the clinic so that as Graeme said, that you know the 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 hit rate for then genetic testing will inevitably go up is always going up and and hopefully will be massively improved
0: thank you yeah I think um I think our our community and I'm sure fight for sites community are really grateful to the work that the team has has done so far and will continue to do and thank you both very, very much for spending some time with us uh, today um, to talk about your really exciting work with the UK IRDC.
1: It's a pleasure.
3: Thank you.
0: Yeah, pleasure. Great to talk to you all.
1: Yeah, it's nice to see you.
0: Thanks. Bye for now, everybody.